Usually, we would then have a video that plays, and I would get all set up if I were preaching, and I would be up there, and I'd be prepared, and there'd be music, and you'd get all pumped, and you'd be like, yeah, Jesus, all right? That's normally what happens. I had Conan coffee, I apologize. And with that, uh, this week we're doing something a little bit different. Now, if you were here the past four weeks, we went through a series which talked about our emphasis and our values. Our emphasis is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the redemptive plan of God exercised through the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus so we could know him and be in right relationship with God. Then we talked about this value that we have to talk about the resurrection because we do not believe in a dead God. Amen? Third week, we spent our time talking about sanctification, spiritual growth, and I felt like I had to emphasize the reality that God is the one who grows us. God is the one who does the real heavy lifting, but we are a participant in this, and so we spent some time in that. And then last week, we talked about what we went uh, heart, head, hands, and then last week we were in house, which talked about the reality that we have leadership, and here's how we shepherd, here's how we care for the people in the church. And one of our big values at the church is to equip. Because one of the things about equipping is, if we're equipping other people to do work, to serve the Lord, they're getting the opportunity to grow, and we're also kind of showing that we're not making everything about one person. So if you notice, well, you might not, because your heads are pointed this way, but there are different people that serve in the tech ministry every week. If you guys have children, there are different people serving in children's every week. If you notice, on the platform, there are different people leading worship every week. And generally, I tend to teach, but there are opportunities that other people have in this community to grow as communicators because I'm, I have a lot of pastors who covet the fact that we have a teaching team, so it's not just me talking at you and getting burned out, but we have other people that God is gifted to communicate. Now, with that teaching team, we have a few people who years ago were interns. Let me mention two of them, Malik Campbell and Laura Stengel. And they were interns, and when they were interns, they had the opportunity, I think during COVID, to teach on video. Is that right? Is that what you guys did? Okay. Well, today, after uh, some prodding, some prayer, and some encouragement, I asked our very own creative director, because she's no longer a intern. She's been creative director for a few years now. She's been full-time for a few years now, and she is an awesome person to do life with. Her name's Laura Stengel. I've asked her to bring God's word today. Now, what's interesting about this was originally, we were just going to do the series called Testify. Testify! And we were going to use this as an opportunity for her to share a story, but I said, okay, I want us to do this together. Well, when she explained her message to me, when she taught it to me, I was like, yeah, I don't really need to help. You, you got this. And so with that, I want to invite Laura Stengel up here to teach God's word. Would you guys welcome her? Thanks, Tim. Well, good morning. Uh, as to mention, I'm Laura Stengel, and uh, I'm both a participant here at COV, and I also happen to be on staff. And uh, yeah, I wanted to start today with two disclaimers. First disclaimer is what verses we're going to be covering. So Tim read it, Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. And 16 through 21, I'm treating as context. It's an amazing context to set up verses 22 through 34, which is what I'm actually going to be talking about. So don't freak out if I just summarize 16 through 21. 
The second disclaimer is I'm actually very terrified to be up in front of you all this morning. Uh, I'm not a teacher by any stretch of the imagination, and while I may talk a lot, and oftentimes very quickly, uh, it's not my comfort zone to be in front of you all. My comfort zone is hiding in the tech booth or behind some musical instruments up here on a Sunday morning. But as Tim mentioned, uh, he asked me to teach this morning. And like every time he asks, I always go to say, yeah, no thanks. And instead my mouth said, yeah, sure. <laughs> Actually, I'm pretty sure my response this time was, ah, okay. And I share all of that to say I'm not a polished speaker. But that doesn't ultimately matter. Because my job, like all of our jobs, if we claim to be in Christ, is to testify to the fact that Jesus is alive and living and active and we get to worship him in a lot of different ways and sometimes that means opening God's word and sharing what it means. So, the last few weeks as I was thinking through, okay, how do we testify to God's work in, in my life and on our lives and Tim and I were talking, we're talking about what passages, hey, it would be cool if we did it in Acts. I was like, well, hey, my favorite line in Acts is from Acts 17, to the unknown God. Not just because it's a cool line, but because it perfectly speaks to where I've been in my life. It also happens to be the title of today's sermon, so if you take notes, there you go. I'm also a huge fan of thesis statements. I wrote a lot of papers in college. I was, history was my thing, and so if you like thesis statements, if you like the lens that I'm gonna be using this morning, here it is, it'll be up on the screen. Just because God is an unknown in your life does not mean he's unknowable. Just because God is an unknown in your life does not mean he's unknowable. So here we go. Let me summarize verses 16 through 21, but before I do that, I'm just gonna pray for us very quickly. God, I just thank you so much that I have the opportunity, that we have the opportunity to open your word, to understand a little bit better about who you are, your sacrifice on the cross, and I just ask and pray that you would be here, that you would open hearts and minds and you would be speaking. And I just pray that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's summarize it. Verses 16 through 21 of Acts 17. So the apostle Paul, the dude who wrote most of what we call the New Testament, formerly Saul, formerly opposed to Christianity before encountering the risen savior, is waiting for his friends, Silas and Timothy, in Athens. And while he's waiting, in that waiting, he's observing. He's actively observing the people in the culture around him, how idolatry and religiosity had taken over. And he's not just observing, he's also actively interacting with the people in the synagogues and in the marketplaces, and all the while speaking of Jesus. My point is, is that he's not kicking back with a Greek version of a Mai Tai working on a suntan. He's engaged as he's waiting. And I don't wanna skip over that. Even if this is a summary, I still wanna ask you a question. How do you wait? Let me put it another way. What is your heart attitude when you find yourself in a period of waiting in your life? I know for me in my life, periods of waiting are often characterized by spiritual apathy, twiddling my thumbs, and if I'm truly honest, a lot of video games, television shows, and movies. I'm a binge watcher. I often haven't and don't see waiting as an opportunity to minister and speak truth where I'm at. And Paul has found himself literally waiting for his friends, and he's not idle in that. He's not complaining. He's not shaking his fist at God. He's not looking at his watch going, yo, where you at, Timothy and Silas? No. He's actively testifying to who Jesus is and exactly where he's at. 
So in the middle of that, two disparate groups of philosophers approach him, the Stoics and the Epicureans. And if you are nerdy, you wanna know who's who, what do they believe, I will very high level summarize what each group believed. Stoics believed that everything is in our control and depends on our spirituality and virtue. Epicureans believed that nothing could be controlled, so YOLO, let's double down on material things and pleasures. And if you don't know what YOLO means, it means you only live once, and that's the first and only time I will millennial-splain to you. <laughs> now before you say, oh man, this doesn't apply, there are no epics and stoics, sure there are. It's called legalism and cheap grace. Legalism says I can work my way to God, and cheap grace says I can do whatever and never truly repent. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the famed theologians, said it this way, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And Paul's gonna address this. He's going to address both groups, the legalists and those who believe that they can do whatever they want. So in the middle of this, they began to debate. And as Paul is testifying to who Jesus is, and eventually they bring him to a meeting called Areopagus, and it's simply a council meeting. That's what Areopagus is, a council meeting where the Athenians debated every kind of topic, legal, philosophical, and religious. So that's the setup, that's the context. So here we go, verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very things you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. I'm gonna pause here and kind of address the elephant in the room. Geez, does it sound like Paul is being aggressive and patronizing, like anybody else? Wow, you're those religious types. Man, you're so ignorant. But I actually don't think that's his tone. In fact, I appreciate the way that the ESV translates it. What you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So all he's doing is noticing that the culture around him, what they believe and what they value is religiosity. The Greeks had hundreds if not thousands of gods and the ways they worshiped them were endless, hundreds of thousands of different ways. And so religious were these people, so afraid of offending their fickle gods that they even have an inscription to a god they might have missed. And it's through that value, through that observation, Paul is noticing what the people around him cared about. And through that he intends to speak about Christ. So I have another question. I like questions. Questions help me think through things. So here we go. Do you observe what matters to the people around you? Are you looking for an opportunity to speak truth into their lives and demonstrate, demonstrate Christ to them? So story time. Uh, I grew up in the church. Uh, and growing up, I used to go to Sunday school and youth group and VBS. I would do the hand motions just like the video last week. And in high school, I used to go to youth group. And during youth group, I had a leader named Julie that I absolutely loved. We connected on a lot of different levels, loved her to death. And in my sophomore year of high school, I hadn't really been to my youth group in a while, probably six plus months. And that was because my family was dealing with a lot of loss. We'd lost three people very close to us, both in and out of our family. And it was a rough time. And I was angry, I was an angry teenager at that point, I was angry that people were taken away, angry that my family and friend dynamics had changed. And so I showed up that 
that night, and I don't remember if my parents dragged me or if I wanted to go, but I just remember being so nervous that night that somebody was going to make a comment, slap me upside the head and go, where the heck have you been all this time? Why haven't you been coming? And it was the last thing I wanted to talk about. So I walk in and Julie sees me and she comes over and I'm totally expecting her to judge me and hit me upside the head with some of those questions. And instead, she gives me the biggest hug and says, I'm so glad you're here. We've missed you. She observed that I hadn't been, she noticed I wasn't okay, and she shared God's love and truth with me. Y'all, the moments that have mattered the most in my faith walk have been the moments that God's people have noticed that I'm not okay and have spoken truth and love exactly where I'm at. And I wasn't a believer at that point. I had no idea who Christ was in, in my heart. But having somebody demonstrate the attributes of God to me in the middle of my anger and my hurt did something. I think God started to soften my heart through that. So in the same way, Paul was noticing the people around him, their idolatry, their religiosity, and rather than slapping them upside the head with some judgment, he observed an opportunity to speak truth in love out of a genuine care and desire to see dead people know a living God. God is knowable. And though he might be an unknown in your life right now, even though you may have missed the point your whole life about who this Jesus person is, he's knowable and get this, he wants you to know him. He wants those around you to know him. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Dot, 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 I'm going to end in the middle of a verse. So Paul is addressing the Athenians' religiosity and their idolatry and their traditions head on and their misunderstanding of what it meant to worship. He's saying God's not small. He can't be contained in an object or a ritual or a building. It's like he's saying, you want to please that unknown God you have an inscription to? Guess what? The very thing you're doing to try and please him displeases him. He doesn't want your temples. He doesn't want your sacrifices and images made out to him. He wants your heart he wants your obedience. And this is a trademark of legalism. Legalism says I have to build or create something to retain God's affection and salvation. Let's build it bigger and better. I grew up in the South. The bigger the hair, the closer to Jesus you are. Legalism says, I have to be good enough. And honestly, that was kind of the environment I grew up in. I grew up going to a lot of very traditions-focused churches. The, the one I remember the most from my childhood absolutely made faith about you can only worship God in a certain way. It made it about a church building, how many people were in the pews, how much they were giving. And it was filled with people that, while I loved them, they looked one way oftentimes during a service and another way during their, air quotes, podcast, normal life. So I grew up hearing about Jesus, totally acknowledged that he was real because it made historical and scientific sense to me that he existed, but I had no idea what it meant to obey. 1 Samuel 15, 22, it's one of my favorite verses to combat my own legalism, and I love the fact that it's in the Bible. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. You can go to church your whole life. You can live a moral life. You can keep every tradition and commandment there ever was and never please the Lord. And that's my story. Acknowledgement is not obedience. Acknowledgement is not obedience. 
Matthew addresses this in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I, will ne- I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Acknowledgement is not obedience. Doing is not relationship. What do I mean by doing? Action. I've been doing things since I was quite small. I'm going to pull a Paul here. I'm going to start listing some things off. I was five when I joined a choir, 11 when I joined worship team, 10 when I started serving in VBS. I could speak to who God was with the knowledge born out of years of growing up in church. And as I got older, that continued. But underneath all of that, I totally thought I had to earn his love. I had to work to keep my salvation. And if I messed up, God would Zeus thunderbolt me into the ground. Insert photo of Zeus throwing thunderbolts. I thought he was a genie, a get out of jail free card. I thought worship was on Sundays only. I thought God was relegated to a black book with the word holy on it and never cared about me or what I was going through. And I'm here to tell you if that's you, I get you. And I also want to say that that's a lie. He does care, he's not small, and obeying him is not keeping a list of rules and regulations, a law book that he can throw at you to feel guilt and shame. Obedience literally means to trust. It means to hear God's word, to trust him at his word, and act accordingly. But that action doesn't save you. Doing has its place, but it's out of a heart attitude of trust. James 1, 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Doing things doesn't save you. Acting moral doesn't save you. Obedience, acting according to God's word is a response to what God has already done in you. We say this all the time at COV, motivation matters. Why you do what you do matters. And what you do is a response to what the Lord has already done. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it's not a sermon until I quote this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Legalism isn't the answer. Continuing on in verse 25 of Acts 17. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So Paul is continuing with his reasoning. He's just explained legalism isn't the answer. God's not small. And now he's jumping to, look how big he is. Look how grand and in control he is of everything, of the nations and the people and their boundaries. And I think it's incredibly easy to overcorrect with this, to go from legalism, I can control God, to what I call hoodoo voodooism of whatever, man, he's all around us. I got one laugh, that's great. God's not a new agey Buddhist etch-a-sketch God. He's not in the trees and the animals and the wind. He's not the force, a mysterious energy field created by life that binds the galaxy together and meant to be used as a Jiminy cricket on our shoulder. Yes, I am mixing analogies. Disney owns everything. There will be some kind of weird movie that comes over with a crossover that ruins my childhood. Side note, don't ever give me Photoshop because that's a monstrosity. God is almighty 
and omnipresent everywhere, omniscient, all-knowing, yes, but he is not unpredictable, he's not fickle, he doesn't bend and sway to culture, he's not an unknowable ethereal force, he's not a whatever man, YOLO, do whatever you want. I'll go to heaven. God is a holy God and he cares about your motivations. Romans 6, 1 through 2, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may, so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Uh, this verse was really challenging to me when I became a new believer. Uh, I totally misinterpreted it as if I sin, I'm disqualified. And that's not what it means, so don't hear that when I say that. You're not disqualified because you sin. I came to the Lord when I was 16, and honestly, I seesawed from legalism to this cheap grace. In my attempt to undo my legalism, I overcorrected, and it was about the emotional and spiritual highs that I had, and if I wasn't perfect all the time, then I was a terrible Christian, and God was there to make me feel better, right? And if he doesn't, then I can pursue and try to latch onto whatever will make me feel better, right? Because I'm forgiven, I get a free ticket, right? Y'all, when you're saved by the God most high, it does not mean you can do whatever you want. It means you can do whatever God wants. What do I mean by that? Well, the historian Augustine puts it this way, love God and do what you want. And I think so many times we hear, yeah, love God, let's party! I can do what I want. But that's not what he's saying. Loving God isn't some touchy-feely feeling you get every now and then. Loving God is doing what he says for the right reasons. It's consistently engaging with him and responding to him because of what he does. When you love him, you do what he wants. Your heart begins to change. How do I know what he wants? I used to ask this all the time. I'm a typical young adult. How do I know his will? How do I know what he wants? Read his word. Ask questions of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Grow in maturity. Seek him. Pray. He's faithful to provide. Following Christ should be evidenced by a heart change which shows up in your actions. So he's not a hoodoo voodoo force. He's the unchanging but knowable God. And we get to have a relationship with him by grace, through faith. And hear me, if this is you, if you dabble in Jesus, but do whatever you want, I get you. I've been there too. And you aren't disqualified. I've been there. It's okay. But what's not okay is refusing to ever let Christ change you, refusing to let go of your selfish desires and sin because you think you know better. His grace is sufficient and he's faithful to meet us where we're at. But don't hear that and go, I can do whatever I want, man. Verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Um, I think it's really easy as soon as we uh, see this to justify ourselves by what we do, by what we make or create, but what our job is, how much we serve, how skilled we are, and Paul's heading that off too. He's already addressed legalism, he's addressing cheap grace, and now he's addressing the human proclivity to worship created things. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how skillful you are, how successful you are, how eloquent you are, and so on and so forth. If Christ isn't at the center, it's worthless. 
Matthew explains this in Matthew 6, starting in 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, Matthew's not talking about gold and silver. He's not talking about money. He's talking about your identity. Where you place your identity, your worth, your value matters. So I have another question. Where, what do you run to that you think justifies you? Or put another way, where have you placed your identity? I'm an artist. Uh, I'm a graphic designer and a media producer. I'm the creative director here at COV. I'm the daughter of Gloria and Matt, the sister to Jonah and Nathan, friends to many of you. I take great pride and joy in making things and completing projects to the best of my ability. I love being creative. I love painting. I love filmmaking. I love music and worshiping here. I'm a swimmer. I love the water. I grew up on boats. I love eating food of every cuisine. If you give me food, I will love you forever. But the thing is, with all of those identifications, they can't be my identity. Because all of those things, the things that I just listed, fail because they're created. They're not the infinite, almighty God. Uh, Tim said this in a sermon a little while ago. Jesus is the only one who can bear the weight of our identity. Jesus is the only one who can bear the weight of our identity. So Paul says, don't worship your own skill. Repent. Uh, side conversation, repentance, when we start talking about it, gets people kind of nervous because I think we have an image of when we say repent, what that means. Uh, I used to go to SJSU and almost every day, weather permitting, some dude would set up shop in the main quad in front of the fountain yelling into a microphone and amp about Jesus and how we need to repent, the end is nigh. That's not what Paul is doing. He's not beating them up and yelling at them. He's plainly stating what they need in order to be saved. And repentance is part of the process, but hear me, repentance does not save you. Jesus, the risen Savior and Lord, saves you. I used to think repentance did save me. I used to think that that action was a one-time thing that you do, you know, just once. I did altar calls, whatever, whatever that means. So I'm good, right? But the problem with that is that it relegates it to an action that I do. It relegates it to my ability to be better. Because that mentality says I should live perfectly right now, so why do I still mess up and sin? Uh, repentance is a heart attitude. It's a continuous invitation to have an intimate relationship with God. It's a continued response to the work Christ has done in your life. Repentance is a response and a heart attitude of receiving grace through faith because of Jesus. It's a daily thing. Verse 31, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others says, we wanna hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Uh, I think it's really easy to get hung up on that word judge, judgment, justice. Uh, I had another church context that I grew up in that tended to focus a lot on end times and what is it like, let's crack the code, and what does it mean? And I'm not really gonna spend any time on that, except to say it's not the point. The point is we all think that we should get what we deserve, 
but the reality is, is what we truly deserve is an eternal separation from Jesus. But God, in his kindness, offered a way through Jesus, and God, also in his kindness, doesn't force himself on those who don't want him, and that's all that judgment means. Judgment is simply seeing who wants Jesus and who doesn't, and for those who don't, they won't get him. And for those who do, for those of us who received him and want him, we get grace. We do not get what we deserve, the unmerited or unearned gift of right standing before a holy and perfect God. Titus 3 puts it this way, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Jesus rising from the dead changes everything. It changed everything for me, not because I completely understood it at the time or understand everything about God and his character and why he does what he does, but because I knew I was a sinner, I knew I was miserable, and I knew I couldn't live that way anymore, and the hope that Jesus provided was enough for me. So the series is called Testify, and I have yet to kind of share the typical testimony. And I think way too often when we talk about, hey, what's your testimony? It's share your life story. So here it is. I said it before I became a believer when I was 16, and I don't have a crazy story of, I was on drugs and saw a vision and God saved me. I I don't have that. I was an angry kid whose family was imploding with grief and I couldn't function anymore. And I could totally focus on that one moment, the moment when my brand new believer dad called me out in an argument. I could focus on my anger at that. I could focus on how I walked away and said, God, I can't do this anymore. I could focus on waking up the next morning like a giant weight had been lifted off my shoulders. I could focus on all of these moments, but that is not my testimony. My testimony is that I knew all the right answers and I had no idea who God was. My testimony is I sought both justification and sanctification and what I could do or feel. My testimony is I casually surrendered my life to the God most high when I hit rock bottom. My testimony is that I started to read God's word and ask questions. I began to walk with fellow believers who pointed me towards truth and grace and love and I began to repent daily. I stumbled daily. I began to trust and believe he was big enough to handle my ignorance and my arrogance. And I began to pursue him, not perfectly, but consistently. And Jesus was there every step of the way. And that is where I'm at today, a walking work in progress. My testimony of what God is doing is this. At one time, he was completely unknown, but not unknowable. And I'll gladly spend the rest of my life getting to know him. So as I close, uh, I have another question. At the end of this passage, Luke writes about the ways that people responded to hearing Paul's witness to who Jesus was. Some sneered, some wanted to hear more, and some believed. Your response to the reality that Jesus died for you, taking the burden and punishment for every wrongdoing, breaking the power of sin and death, and rising again victorious, matters. Your response matters. Placing your identity in Jesus matters. So what's your response? Do you sneer and walk away, unwilling to surrender, to bow a knee to the God most high? Do you attempt to justify yourselves with anything or anyone that feels right or good? Do you say, oh, we wish to hear more, declaring who he is with your mouth and never doing anything with that? Or do you raise the white flag, trusting God at his word 
and following him. So whether you sneer or whether you want to hear more, I'm really glad you're here. And I'd encourage you to engage, to ask hard questions, and be willing to let the Lord change you. Preach it! Laura was uh, in college when I met her, and she was a part of a ministry, and I'm going to expect some woos from a few of you, part of a ministry called Pulse. That was less than I expected, but uh, a lot of those who were at Pulse are faithful servants here at this church, and we're grateful for them, Um, but Laura was on leadership team, and Laura was a, a young woman who had come from a lot of what she described today to you. And uh, man, like we had some hard conversations. My, my dear friend has yelled at me a few times and repented, um, and as have I. And the thing that I wanted you guys to hear, because the Testify series is more of an opportunity for us when we're between series for people in the community to be able to share what God's done in their life. But she's a teacher, if she likes it or not. And she, yeah, and she took this opportunity to show you from the scriptures how God used Paul in that context to testify to the risen Savior that a lot of people were like, what, resurrected and started to sneer, as the passage points out. And so my hope for us as a community, as we did what we did last week, where we spent this time talking about what do we emphasize, what do we value, is that you would start to realize that no matter what your story is, as long as the story has Jesus intervening and changing you, is a story you can testify about. Amen? Like, I, I wasn't, you know, hopped up on drugs either, but I definitely was fighting Christianity, thinking it was the dumbest thing. I've, I mean, I sat in pews going, that is crap. Can I say crap? Well, I'm past. Yes, crap. It was crap. And it was horrible. And I thought it was ridiculous. And I thought they just wanted our money. And I thought they just wanted us to dress a certain way and all this stuff. And then I came to the realization that Jesus rose from the dead. And that changed everything for me. And so my hope for you is as you hear this message, maybe as you think about some notes you wrote down, or maybe there was something that stuck with you, that it would point you towards the reality that Jesus is a knowable God, and he's here, and he's, every time I say, hey, any questions or concerns or rebukes, and then I say accents, Laura's always got an accent. Could you tell in that message? Oh, man. So, worship team, I'm going to ask you guys to come on up, and we're going to have the opportunity to respond in musical worship. This is one of the ways that we can worship, and my hope is, as that message stirs in you. We're going to have takeaways after these two songs that maybe you'd be prepared to share a takeaway, something that stuck with you, something that you're going to take away and put into practice, and it's going to change the way you think about God. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that it's not that hot in this room yet. Praise you, Jesus. But I also praise you, more importantly, for the testimony of grace provided by Laura. I thank you that you have been with her every step of the way. I thank you that we get to hear that and we get to respond in worship and praise and maybe even for a few of us in repentance, not because it makes us right with you, but by grace through faith, our response is to repent. So God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for what you're going to do in the hearts of your people. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.